This is The Shorts, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a duct tape than beer production, with additional support from New Belgium Brewing, Kuat Racks, and Patagonia. Snow started to fall as I navigated an urban maze of open-air markets, tall buildings, and mosques with shiny minarets. My new friend, Babak, and I got some inquisitive stares from the locals as we food shopped for the next few days. In ski boots. I guess the looks might have derived from the fact that we were wearing backpacks with A-frame skis attached, smack in the middle of an 8 million person city. Tehran, Iran. A city braced so tightly against the mountains that once we finished our shopping, we just parked on a side street in the middle of the city and started hiking in. Mere hours after landing, my senses were overloaded with change. As we hiked upwards, roads gave way to increasingly narrow paths. We passed shepherds and donkeys ferrying supplies up to shops since vehicles couldn't access the trail. Finally, the geography forced small settlements to give way to pillows of fresh snow hugging the sides of steep, rocky peaks. Just below the imposing stone hut that would be our home for the night, we turned to quietly take stock of the landscape behind us. We gazed 3,000 feet down on the city as the sun set, turning the Tehranian smog into a fiery, glowing haze. Nine months earlier, at a bar in Pittsburgh, a mutual friend had introduced me to Babak, an Iranian-American. Within seconds, we began talking about the Al-Bors Mountains, the most prominent range in Iran. Delighted at the chance conversation, I mentioned my keen interest in skiing there since reading a Powder Magazine article about a decade before. Babak told me that if I would trust him as my guide, he could take me to the places I wanted to go. We exchanged info, and over the next few months, I tried to persuade my partners in adventure to take on the Persian mountains with skis and skins. In the fall, Babak called, asking if I was still going to Iran. I decided not to wait for my friends to be convinced. I was in. Babak and I turned our focus from the expansive city below to the Polong Shelter, a short walk away. It's an impressive European-style stone hut at almost 10,000 feet. As I walked around the deck lined with Iranian flags and photos of President Ahmadinejad, I felt I had entered a fortress overlooking the capital city below. Inside, our two cheery caretakers welcomed us, respectively from Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. As we settled in, I was fascinated to learn about their lives as immigrants working hard to feed their families in their home countries. They asked Babak how to get to Europe, the holy grail for a Middle Eastern immigrant. Learn English, he quickly responded. Soon, lesson number one commenced, and we spent the rest of the night teaching them their ABCs. We sang in between bites of rich lamb and potato stew with the local flatbread, Sangak. I quickly forgot the hustle and bustle of Tehran just hours before and settled into the tradition of staring at the glow of the hut's wood stove. There are over 50 huts like Palang scattered throughout the range in Iran, every bit as dense as in the Swiss Alps. 
From the spring through fall, Tehranians flock to these huts to hike or partake in traditional mountaineering, which is practically the national sport. Some huts even hold weekly mountaineering classes and camps in season. Yet, in February, we often had them to ourselves. Backcountry skiing is relatively unheard of in Iran. The mountains reminded me of the sun-baked peaks of the southern Andes, so the absence of off-piece skiers surprised me. But, as we met the occasional hiker and mountaineer in the wilderness, they seemed dumbfounded. Are you lost? You know the resort is on the other side of the ridge, right? Why are you skiing uphill? They just didn't seem to get the draw of skiing backcountry powder. While skiing in Iran is relatively common among the upper class, it's limited to groomers at the resorts. Babak thought only a couple dozen ski mountaineers existed in the country, many of them guides for the rare French or Austrian skimo group. Let's just say we didn't need to fight for first dibs on powder stashes. The next day, we awoke in the thick of the first major storm in two months. We fired up the wood stove and happily stayed inside. The weather broke in the afternoon and I dug a snow pit, which revealed some really high avi conditions. I reminded Babak that we should spend the next day on low-angle terrain. To my surprise, he asked why. Through the ensuing conversation, I learned that Iranians view avalanches as inshallah, or God willing. The notion that education, assessment, and technology could prevent burial in an avalanche was a completely foreign concept. You don't believe that, do you? I asked nervously. But Beck just smiled back and said, I don't know what to believe. So that night, I taught a crash course in avalanche search and rescue. After our first foray into the mountains, we met a couple at the trailhead. They insisted on us staying a couple of nights at their apartment in Tehran. Their kindness, humility, and warmth put me completely at ease. I felt like I had close friends hosting me, even though we just met. In fact, they were taking more of a risk. If the government found them housing Americans, they might go to jail. And Iranian prisons make ours look like bed and breakfasts. To this day, I still can't mention their names out of fear of getting caught. They threw caution to the wind on a list of other illegal activities, like living together, being seen publicly out of wedlock, owning a satellite dish, getting around a ban on Facebook, freedoms we all take for granted. They felt these risks were worth it though, showing that Iranians were proud of their inclusive culture. That first night in Tehran, we played games and smoked hookah, as I got a crash course in Iranian politics. I learned that most Iranians consider themselves more liberal than the government. As I thought about my own preconceived notions of Iran, I realized I hadn't given much thought to just how many people might want to distance themselves from the administration. Up until that point, I perceived their culture based solely on what I knew from the news. I hadn't expected everyday people to welcome Americans so openly. I found it refreshing even if it meant talking politics.
took me a week in Iran to find someone with a healthy fear of avalanches. A smiling, mustached man named Majid introduced himself one night at the Pular Hut, which stood at the base of Iran's tallest mountain, Damavand, over 18,000 feet tall. As a sort of father figure to the mountaineering community, Majid has mentored many young Iranians to safely enjoy the mountains. I quickly gained respect and admiration for him as a safe and competent mountaineer. So, when he asked if I wanted to ski with a couple of his friends the next morning, I jumped at the chance. Meet them downstairs at 6 and get some sleep. You're going to need it, he said. The next morning, Babak and I followed our new friends, Isan and Davud, down a windy, dusty, one-lane road to Lesem, a small village at the base of the Dobeirar Ridge. Protecting the village entrance was a sleepy security guard and a chain across the road with an ominous sign and squiggly Farsi text. After some animated conversation with the guard, we drove in past the stairs of locals peering out their kitchen windows. Would you like a traditional Iranian breakfast? Babak asked me as he perused the menu at the village diner. Sure, I responded sleepily. Little did I know I had just committed eating sheep's feet at 6 a.m. After I determined the edible part of a sheep's foot, I tackled the bottomless supply of tea in an attempt to wake up. I started chatting up my new ski partners for the day, feeling out what I was in for. Davud and Isan revealed that they were training for an ultramarathon across the Alps, and today's tour was just a warm-up for the 50k training run the next day. After the meal, they spoke in Farsi to a local shepherd, while I fought off his flock to fill up on water at the village spigot. Soon, we were off. Starting up a silent valley that absorbed our friendly conversation about Islamic and Western culture, the sun shone over our route into the mountains. Like any good day in the outdoors, we shed layers, high-fived, and had a spirited debate over who had more fun. Eventually, our route wound up a steep section towards a high ridge, topping out around 14,000 feet. From the top, we saw the magnificent Mount Damavan looming across the valley. On the descent, Isan and Davud easily carved their way down large bowls, quietly smiling ear to ear every time we stopped to catch our breath over the 5,000 vertical feet. We converged at a babbling creek and sat in the sun in meditative peace. I finally broke the silence to mention my first craving for beer ever since landing in Iran. They told me we had something even better in store. See, the shepherd we met that morning had agreed to prepare some tea and dinner in his home, a common custom in Iran, even among strangers. Kind of a way to say, welcome to our village. Our host invited us to sit on the floor of a sunny, colorful room lined with Persian carpets and served us a bottomless mountain feast. Certainly a different post-touring experience than I was used to, but I'd take Iranian hospitality, sunshine, good company, and piles of food over a beer any day of the week. The evening of eating and copious amounts of laughter in the dim light of the setting sun perfectly closed our adventure. Over 11 days, I had Iranians share countless pots of tea, ask about my thoughts on their beloved country atop a summit, and ignore long-standing laws to invite me into their home. However, the epitome of my Iranian experience came on a crowded Tehran subway early in the trip. As I watched people shuffle in and out of the train, I felt a strong tap on my shoulder. I turned to find a scruffy man staring back at me. 
He wore a long, thick beard, a unibrow, and a crooked smile. My heart rate quickened for a moment as I faked an inquisitive look. I want to welcome you to Iran, he said, placing a bag of candy in my hands and a gentle hand on my shoulder. Feeling foolish for acting a bit jumpy, I thanked him with a handshake and a hug. After that moment, I knew I had to let go of my preconceptions and open up to the warmth of the Iranian people. While the skiing was awesome, the world is full of great powder to explore. The greater adventure for me was exploring the spirit of Iranians. Coming from the States, I had a lot of people tell me how dangerous Iran would be. I was unsure of what to really expect. My inexperience and utter lack of understanding in historic and cultural issues caused me to have a wide breadth of feelings. I was open-minded, yet also on guard. In the end, Iran's spirit took me completely and pleasantly by surprise. At its core is pure kindness and a lack of prejudice. The benevolence I received from Iranians inspired me to approach every situation with a more open mind. Doing so opened up the world in a way I hadn't expected. I arrived in Iran anticipating an epic ski adventure and left with an altered perception of both Iran and places I've yet to visit. Perhaps most of all, I've opened up to the warmth of humanity no matter where I am. My name is Greg Bizalencia, and this is my short. Thank you so much, Greg, for sharing your story. I hope we don't have to cross an ocean this winter to get in powder turns. Music today from The King in Yellow, The Walt Hall Tango, and our friends Publish the Quest, who kindly let us poach their music for the diaries. The rest of the tracks are courtesy of Mevio's Music Alley. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Support from the diaries comes from you. Whether it's a donation, a t-shirt purchase, or a note of thanks, you keep the diaries thriving. Next year, the podcast turns 10. Help us make it through a full decade. Go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click the button in the upper right-hand corner to pledge your support. Support comes from the good people at Patagonia. For decades, First Nations, conservationists, backcountry skiers, and snowboarders have fought a proposed large-scale ski resort deep in the Purcell Mountains of British Columbia. Visit patagonia.com to watch Jumbo Wild, a new short film from Sweetgrass Productions, and find out what you can do to help keep Jumbo Wild. Additional support comes from New Belgium Brewing, who joined up with Ben & Jerry's to create a special release, Salted Caramel Brownie Brown Ale. Every sip you take of the rich, chocolatey, salted caramel vanilla goodness helps protect our winners combat climate change. Locate a six-pack near you at newbelgium.com. And support comes from Kuat Rats, the little company who believed they could build a better bike rack. Want to give the cyclist in your life an awesome gift for the holidays? Visit kuatracks.com and check out their lineup of good-looking, easy-to-use roof racks and rear racks. This episode was produced by Becca Cajal and me, Jen Elchel. I'm filling in for the Cajalis this week while they get to know the newest addition to their family, Wiley Cajal, born on November 4th. Tell them congratulations when you get a chance. In the meantime, you're stuck with me. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Why, why, why?